and welcome to a new episode of From the Honeycomb Podcast. I am your host, Katerina Burenova. Each week, we dive into a blend of topics that resonate with the soul. Whether you're an architect enthusiast, have a passion for wanderlust, want to discover holistic approaches to rejuvenate your body and mind, or are intrigued to learn about Vastu Shastra with a modern approach, you've come to the right place. Join me as I sit down with inspiring, like-minded women from various walks of life. We will delve into their journeys to discuss the challenges and moments that define their paths. So sit back, relax, and let the spark of positive energy ignite your curiosity. Today, I am joined by Gabriella Bermay, licensed architect with a passion for philanthropy and advocating for public education students. She serves on a number of committees, including as the communications director for the AIA Young Architects Forum and is the chair of the Texas Society of Architects, EDI. Through her outreach, she has been able to inspire many future architects. Gabriella, thank you for coming on From the Honeycomb podcast. Thank you for having me, Katerina. I'm so excited to be here. Excited to have you. And as you know, we begin every episode by sharing something that we are grateful for in the present moment. So what are you grateful for? Uh, I think right now I'm really grateful um, to have as strong of a community and support system as I do. My husband is currently going through the licensure process and to be able to witness how fortunate we are to have such a structured process behind us, although it may have its, its faults and its great things, I'm fortunate we have the chance to be able to do it and call ourselves licensed architects and serve our communities in that way. Oh, that's amazing. And yeah, good for your husband too, getting a license. It's, and it's, I have a quick question since you went through the process, do you, are you helping him just out of curiosity? Like, how do you approach it with him? We very much saw it as like a, when I was taking mine, he took on a lot more of the responsibilities in the home to help make sure that we could have that opportunity to do so. Having two of us in the household makes that makes a world of difference. Um, he really was a rock for me when I was going through that. And in turn, that is what I am now. So maybe less so in the, here, let me help you study because we tried that and that's hard. <laughs> it's really difficult. But in the, hey, I'll pick up, I will meal prep for us this week while you study. That has been where we've really found a lot of balance. I'll say that. And again, it's just really grateful to have a partner like him. No, that's huge. That's huge. So Gabriella, so now we know you're licensed, yeah. but walk us through your journey in architecture. You know, when did you decide you want to be an architect and kind of lead us to where you are today? Yeah, of course. I always joke. I'm like, I wish it could give you a burnt grand. Oh, I've loved buildings since I was a child. Realistically, I my mom was a public education teacher and I spent hours with her after school, before school, involved in every extracurricular you could think of. So I was comfortable with buildings. I was comfortable with schools. My family would take us to San Antonio often because I grew up in Eagle Pass. I grew up on the border. San Antonio was it for us. Like if we wanted to go to the mall, if we wanted to go see these like to me beautiful structures, which were the bridges, I was just fascinated by. And I asked my started asking my parents the questions like, okay, who does that? Like who makes that actually happen? And it ended up being civil engineers. So I was like, okay, engineering. It's on my head. Let's go. We relocated to Texarkana and there was a incredible STEM program that I was a part of in high school. We were one of the first classes to actually have that and benefit from it in this beautiful building. And I had a teacher in the engineering course that we had, you know, they broke it into six weeks and one of them was architecture and we were designing stick houses and we were drawing, we were drafting essentially. And I had a teacher say, hey, Gabby, why don't you join my drafting class? It's usually all guys. <laughs> There's usually no women in it. And, and 
I think you've got a talent for it. So why don't you join us? I did. And I fell in love with it. I thought it was a blast. The community that came along with architecture, even in high school, was just so, so next level. You felt like you were supported. And it was such a small group too, right? Then I went to university. And <laughs> I don't want to say it was a different story. It was the same story in the support system. I made some of my best friends. That's where I met my husband. It's where I met one of my best friends, Shadia, who was on the podcast prior. Some really, really great connections there. But I truly stuck. When I say I struggled, that's probably an understatement. And I had been told a couple times in my first year studio and second year studio, this may not be the path for you. That's how much I struggled with it. I went from being like top of my class to I can't even call myself in the lower tier. I can't even call myself in the mid tier. It was it was difficult. And I had such a learning gap to get over. But I had some really supportive professors who said, we believe in you. For ones who said, you know, you may want to consider it. I think it was really meant with the greatest intentions. I don't think it was meant cruelly. But I had the professors who were saying, yeah, you can do this. You, you, we believe in you. And I think that makes a world of difference is being able to hear someone tell you that story. You fast forward, I ended up being the first person in my graduating class to become licensed. When I was the only person who said I wouldn't be, <laughs> I got pulled into advocacy and educational learning environments through my internship in my third year, and it pivoted my entire career. It made me really realize that architects at our core are service-minded humans, and we are intended to be here to make people's lives better through the built environment, to think not only about the environment, but think about the human-centered environments that we're creating and the lives, the kids who are going to spend hours and hours in it, the teachers, the faculty. I think we have a social responsibility to do such. And in after my internship, I was really encouraged to go after licensure. They said, Gabby, do it, do it, get your stamp. That's the trust mark that you have with the environment. It's, it's great for our clients to actually understand and see that you made the dedication to do so. And I did, was able to finish through that process with its own hurdles, <laughs> its own hurdles. I felt like there's always that feels like an uphill climb. But then once you're there, you're like, OK, what else? And who can we empower to help lift as we continue to climb up these mountains? Who are we bringing along with us and who are we helping to support in the stories? And um, yeah, I was really fortunate to have found a great environment with VLK Architects, which is where I am now as an associate and design architect. And I get to do the design environments of education every day constant with client meetings or the one-on-one -on -one conversations with programming with different districts understanding the curriculum and instruction so I felt like I, I get that tie back to where taken back to my mom's classroom where I was spending years of my life sitting on in her teacher desk just witnessing and, and enjoying all of the great things that came with education from a different lens now I think I'm grateful to have that added level of empathy and understanding what it is our public educators are going through day to day and what they should have is highest class of educational facilities that we can provide. No, absolutely. Well, wow. Thank you for sharing your story. And it's amazing the pivot you were able to make in that third year. And congratulations on becoming the first licensed architect in your class. That's huge. And I think it's very important to, you also made a comment about that the stamp is like a stamp of trust. And that's something that is huge, where I think a lot of clients don't understand the value of hiring a licensed architect versus a draft person. So that's something that I like that it's a stamp of trust and letting the public know. And you also, there are so many things you touched on, especially also that architects, you know, we have a service to the public. We are creating a built environment. And that's something, too, that people don't understand. And you already kind of captured that when you were a child 
just seeing the bridges, like who builds this? There's someone here thinking about how we're going to get from, you know, one side of the river to the other. And so that's really interesting that you already started to kind of like the seed was planted then for you. Very, very much so. And I apply that a lot to my parents who were very involved when we were, and myself and my brother and growing up and in, in saying, we see you asking these questions. Not only are we going to answer them, but we're going to point you to how you can find answers to them. So I was very much a library kid and encyclopedia kid. <laughs> Once the internet was like fully in use, I had laptops and cell phones. I still am very much that way. Follow us. I'm going to Google it <laughs> learn and try to find things out. And I think we, as architects, unfortunately, we're not in the full advocacy space of everyone down the street knows what an architect is. Mm-hmm. Maybe not in the same way that you'd see in the engineering or in the medical professions. So I am really charged with that in saying, not only how are we creating on the design side, are we creating these excellent environments, but how are we making it known who we are as architects, the value that we offer to the public, and then more importantly, the services that we can provide? And how can we get people to get in this pipeline? In Texas, we're one of, there's more work than licensed architects. So there's that gap we have to talk about in saying, how are we going to not only encourage people to become licensed, but provide the resources and the backing and the support they need to actually be able to do so. It's one thing to to preach it, but then, then what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, do it, become licensed, figure it out on your own. No, that's the last thing we want to do. And I think the more we create advocates and help people understand the value of licensure, the more supportive of a culture we'll end up building. No, absolutely. And you bring up a great point about like the cost of it as well. And just it's not people don't realize not even just the cost for the materials, the exams. If you fail an exam, you got to take it again. But the amount of time it takes to get licensed. And I think advocating that as well, especially early on in a future architect's career, because I know I've had numerous conversations with other architects on the podcast about, did your university program, architecture program, let tell you about licensure and what the exams are like? Majority of everyone I've had on has said, I kind of remember it during one class. Maybe they touched base on it. In my experience, yeah, I learned about it in like the first semester of architecture school. And it was like, yeah, you need to get licensed and there's some exams. But that was first year, first semester of a five-year program. I wasn't thinking about licensure. I was thinking about how am I going to get through this semester (laughs) in the next five years. But it's very important to advocate early on. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't. So we had a, and this is this again talks to professors. I had an incredible professional practice professor, John Vulcans, who just not only was he a practicing architect, but he was also our professional practice teacher, right? So it worked really well. He kind of described the whole process on like what it meant to go from licensure to, or what it meant to do to go from the graduation to licensure process. We talked, we talked about starting your NCARB record and all these things. That was fifth year. But again, I'm going to talk to my internship because I think that's a valuable experience that every student should have the opportunity to be exposed to in their time, in their time in university. Because in that third year, one of my mentors, the person who I was asking a bunch of questions to, Tong Lee, who's now in California, she was in Austin with us previously. We had this big deal of the licensed architects wore the superhero cape. When she finished her exam, she grabbed her scale, she grabbed the cape and ran around the office. And everyone, I'm not kidding, everyone in the office was cheering for her. And it was Aww. the coolest experience to see, to go from like, I mean, not even two years prior, I was told I probably shouldn't be doing architecture because they didn't know, didn't know if I was going to make it through. And I'm watching someone witness what has been 
the pinnacle of her career thus far. And then she's gone on to do much, much bigger things beyond licensure. But to see that celebration was just, it was one of the moments I look back on and I can say, I can point towards it and say, that was one of the ones where I really decided I wanted to be a licensed architect. I wanted to go after this. I wanted to have that same feeling, that pride, that understanding of what it means to be licensed. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. So how are you advocating that? I don't know, how young are the students that you're talking with about architecture? So I'll talk a little to the ACE Mentor Program of Austin and really ACE Mentor Program of America. So we are for 9th through 12th grade students, but that's not to say we haven't talked to younger. With NOMA Project Pipeline, we get the 6 to 8 age group. And then with AIA K through 12, we have everything from kindergarten to sixth graders. So it's, it's fantastic. Where my targeted focus has been serving on the ACE Mentor Austin board has been with the ninth through 12th grade demographic. So, I mean, earlier this week, I was at one of our all girls schools giving three presentations this week. And more than anything else, it's great to talk about the program, but it's equally great to be able to provide them with a connection to a licensed architect who's a female, who represents, you know, the 27% and men most like the 1% of Latina architects. So when you get the chance to make the connection and then they say, oh, can you connect me with another architect? I love being able to say, yes, I can. Who are you looking for? Like, What kind of area do you want to practice? What do you want to talk about? And I feel like you know, I go back to that illusion of loving the building bridges, loving to see the bridges. I think I love connecting the personality bridges, right? How can we connect one person passion with another person's passion? How are we connecting organizations that are doing the same things and just amplify everyone together? Absolutely. And, you know, you bring up a good point. I recently reached out to a local high school to talk to them about hopefully reaching out to the, especially focusing on, I think, on girls as well, especially to bring them into architecture. Because I know when I was going through school, there was one or two instances I remember architects coming in and that kind of planted the seed for me becoming an architect. But I think it's so valuable, especially how you said when you, the student sees themselves in what could possibly be. I think that is huge. It makes such a big impact. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just as valuable as having a mentor who looks like you comes from your same background is having the one who doesn't, who has a complete opposite background, but has had this wealth of knowledge and is taking the time to teach you and to advocate for you. I think as an architectural profession, we've done a good job at mentoring and helping build the next generation, but I think there's more work to do. There's more work to do in saying, how are we really fostering our generation to not only be able to do their job well, but to do better than we did and to take the field of architecture, to take the field of the design industry into the next century. I think we have a lot of work to do, but I'm excited and energized every time I speak with university or or even high school students on where their paths are talking and where they're leading. I think they're going to have a lot of really incredible things to offer our profession. I'm excited to see Gen Z and Gen Alpha into the workplace. Gen Z is already, they're firmly here. Alpha, they're going to shake things up. It's going to be great. <laughs> No, I love it. And have you noticed just out of curiosity for the younger generation coming in, like, have they asked you about AI? I know I had Shadi on about AI, but I'm wondering, because there is in architecture always the generational shift in a firm. You'll see those who are senior architects who drafted and maybe don't know some of the computer programs. And then you've kind of got the middle, you know, there's everybody's in their own different stages. So it's very interesting that you're bringing up the next generation that is also heavily proficient in technology. Exactly. I think that's my favorite part of having our new interns come in for the college summers or our new hires that are right out of school. They know things in technology that me being five years out and way outdated. And it is, it's bringing those professionals 
I'm all about building a firm culture, right? What is it that you're doing to constantly help people improve? When you bring those, the new students, the new professionals into an area that they can actually own, you're bringing them into the technology committee, bringing them into the work groups of that area. They're improving the entire firm while building ownership, while building agency and finding their voice. You're helping them foster and really, in turn, they're teaching our maybe older generations of those who have been out of school longer how to do the things that they've been operating in, which is just excellent for me. Actually, in December, I'm on uh, the NCARB Futures Collaborative. I've been serving on NCARB committees for two years. This is my third year, and this is my first year in the Futures. And with that group, we actually have a future symposium that will be happening in December. It's going to be incredible. One of the topic areas that I am focused on with Marjorie Brown and Wiley is AI. And Wiley is a professor at one of the universities in Washington, and he's actually bringing on his students to talk about the AI portion as a workshop after our conversation with our panelists. So our panelists are people who are practicing with AI, not only at Autodesk, but in New York as a part of their practice. We're going to talk about AI and codes. And then after our listeners get to see that actual presentation, we're going to have students leading the process on how you can use AI in practice. Let me be the workshoppers for you, which to me is just next level. Now you have the chance to connect with the students who are doing this day-to-day. They're teaching this environment, and we're in turn making a stronger cross-generational, multi-generational workplace. And more importantly than the workplace, a profession as a whole. Mm-hmm. No, that that's so true. And it is. It's, it is really important to make sure that you are teaching even the older generation because yeah. one of the great things about architecture is it's always evolving. There's not one architect on this earth who can say, I know everything there is to know about architecture. Exactly. And I think that's so great that you're also bringing in this cross-generation. That is incredibly important. Yeah. It's going to be a really neat conversation. We're doing AI and then we're doing extreme environments and space architecture, all really focused on the next 50 years of practice. Because where we look at it specifically from the NCARB lens is how are we going to regulate this in the future? Mm -hmm. What does the stamp of licensure look like when we're talking about integrating AI into our practices? When you may have AI leading you and doing your first pass on code evaluations and code reviews, okay, where does the licensed architect uh, framework pass into this? And then How does that trickle down to experience? How does that trickle to examinations and to education? It's a really neat place to be in. And I think that that forward-looking mindset has been so valuable to bring back to kind of all of the other organizations you were alluding to earlier, is is having these touch points of saying, now I can broaden the network, not only my own network, but broaden the network of those who have the like-mindedness ideas of what the next few 50 to 100 years of practice looks like. Let me introduce you to some really great people who I just met. You know, I love being able to create those connections. And then in turn, learning, I feel like a wealth of information myself that has applied not only for networks, but into my actual practice and what I can offer services, what I can offer our clients, what VLK can offer our clients in that realm as well. Well, That's amazing. And I just want to go back to, you mentioned space architecture. You mean like outer space architecture? I mean like outer space architecture. The few, so I wasn't on Futures last year, but this year, this, yeah, I wasn't on Futures last year, but last year they actually went to NASA and heard about what designing space on Mars looks like. That's the realm that we're looking at. Now, what that spurred in talking about space architecture is it's extreme environments, right? What happens when we're talking about extreme environments in our actual built environment today. We don't have to go out to Mars to talk about 120 degree temperatures and seeing plastic melt like you're seeing in videos in Arizona right now. 
how can we actually build sustainably for that in the future? Part of it is maybe looking back to past architectural practices. When you look at like the Native American practice of building with wood sticks and the whole idea is you're, you're building for your temporary place, you bring it down and you move to the next place and it's almost as though you weren't there to not disturb your environment. So how can we really apply these multi-generational wisdom prior to where we are today and moving into the future? You're using a lot of the same ideas and technologies just in a different way. Has been incredibly impressive to watch and to witness. You know, it's going like back to the basics, essentially. Exactly. I think there's a lot of a lot of strength to be found there when you understand the core concepts and you apply modern technology to it. The possibilities are limitless. No, oh, that's amazing. I feel like there is kind of that shift happening, not just like in architecture. Seems like even in like medicine and some things I've seen is like people are going back to the yeah the basics, the original, and learning from even indigenous tribes. I had a woman come on talking about you know mushrooms and like the helpfulness and studying indigenous cultures and how they use mushrooms to heal. And it's like if we look back, I think it can be so beneficial for the future as well. Absolutely, like, absolutely, and it's looking beyond. This is a deeper conversation, but sometimes it's looking beyond Western culture. Often mm-hmm. it's looking beyond Western culture that unfortunately was forced upon in a lot of our regions and areas to say, this isn't the best practice forward. How are we really relying on the wisdom that is shared in every culture and building mm-hmm. on from there? No, absolutely. No, That's you bring awesome. up a point of, uh, I, I love studying multicultural homes. And actually my fourth year of architecture school, I was studying abroad in Paris and we had to design an apartment complex. And for me, as I was walking around Paris, I noticed there was just so many different like ethnic groups. And when you think of Paris, you think of, oh, it's just the French. You think of a French person, what they look like, but we're becoming such a melting pot as well. So the design thought behind my apartment complex idea was, let's say you design a two-bedroom apartment and a family from Korea moves in and they have their own culture. They have their own family structure. And then what happens when they move out and a family from Germany moves in or a Parisian? There's just, it's very interesting to once you start studying the different cultures, whether it's Eastern, Western, and how not only just the family structure, but their cultures and how they use the different spaces, which that's a whole topic within and of itself, but just reminded me of it's so interesting once you start taking lessons from different cultures and applying them to your current layout, your current situation, whatever you're designing. It's very interesting. Absolutely. And I mean, this ties tangentially to it is in how we approach design in in the educational sphere. Not every district is going to teach the same. We primarily practice in Texas. We've had projects that have been outside of the state, but we take an actual hands-on approach to understand the curriculum and instruction. The way things will actually be delivered with the understanding, that may change over time, but how are we making it so the space will actually be utilized the way that it's asked to be, right? Not every curriculum is going to support collaboration and outreach or collaboration in the sort. Not every curriculum is going to support outdoor learning. So we're really trying to tailor what the programming discussions are with. And I'm so glad to hear that that's happening. It happened in school, right? That that attention to detail, the attention to who the person is, because again, that's ultimately, and I think that was my disconnect in school, is understanding we were designing for people at the end of the day. As subjective as it is, the idea of a client forward mindedness is what gave clarity to the entire design process in reality. That's awesome. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And I want to talk about your advocacy and also how you work with the curriculums because yeah. you mentioned you did have drafting in school. I did. I did not, which I was very surprised at once I came into architecture school, how many students across the U.S. had drafting, whether it was hand drafting or already knew how to use AutoCAD. I had to take a course before starting architecture school on how to use AutoCAD, which thankfully my stepdad signed me up for because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And he's like, hey, I think you should learn this software. And so that was really helpful. But not all curriculums and programs teach drafting. Yeah. So I, like I said, I was really fortunate to have been a part of that drafting course. It wasn't a new one for the Texas. Well, I went to Texas High in Texarkana. So if you hear Texas High, not whole Texas, just the name of the school. But in my time there, my our teacher there, Mr. Mac, George McCaslin, he actually was an industrial engineer by trade. New, I think the most valuable piece I got out of that was the understanding of craftsmanship and how to create a product that was well thought through and well designed, which you can apply to any industry in reality, but primarily to architecture. That's how I took the lens of it. Now, when we're working in educational environments, specifically with career and technical education, with CTE, that is a state-funded program that is actually national. And one of the career pathways is architecture and construction. Then you have, of course, your STEM, your science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And I've noticed that architecture and construction is even greatly different than when I was in school. The architecture, some schools still have drafting and draftsmen, because essentially you do have that practice still occurring, which is fantastic. But there's also the seeing students graduate with Revit certificates and actual architectural design. I have to applaud our our students in Austin ISD. We actually have a student who's with us today as a part of his practicum of architecture class, a practicum of architecture as a senior in high school. Like, how well set up are you going to be? It's going to be fantastic. He was actually an ACE student of ours who was looking for potential opportunities. And I brought it forward to the firm because that is very much how VLK is. They're like, got a great idea. Let's bring it forward and let's talk about it. And in turn, we were able to find a space for him, not only for an internship, but a paid internship to help supplement him through school and get to this practicum course where he's now joining us three hours a day on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays, which would be his practicum course and getting school credit for it. It's incredible. I think it's such a neat opportunity to see where architecture in K-12 is going. So it looks more like what a practice is. And we're just, again, We're building the longevity into our career to have more people enter it early to say, I actually understand what I'm getting into, as opposed to I'm in my first 10 years and it wasn't what I thought it was or my first five years and it wasn't what I thought it was. So I'm going to go to another career path. This helps us really ingrain an understanding of architecture and in turn, all of the great things that are going to come along with having a younger generation in the staff will help us practice better and help them find more agency and advocacy in who they are and what they want to bring forward to the workplace. Mm -hmm. You brought up a key point too is when someone's in architecture school or you said, you know, what if you're in it for five years, 10 years, and you're like, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And that was definitely a key thing I noticed in my architecture program is second, third year, we even first year, every year, we had plenty of students dropping because they were just like, this is absolutely not the first, the workload is intense. But this isn't at all what I want. And then some students would come back. And I mean, I even went into architecture school. I wanted to be an architect since I was about 10, 11. Didn't know too much about it, but loved it. I was just like, buildings, it's amazing. This is going to be creative. But I still had backup careers in the back of my mind where I was like, if this doesn't work out, when is my turning point going to be? 
And, you know, as I saw other students go, okay, maybe, you know, start dropping out or changing, you know, I had one friend who went into psychology, then she came back out of psychology and was like, nope, I definitely want to do architecture. So it's, it was very interesting, but it's great that a student will know ahead of time kind of what, and what the possibilities are, because architecture is a huge umbrella of what you can do and the possibilities and the career paths. Yeah. And I think that's what's so valuable about programs like ACE, programs like NOMA Project Pipeline that are going to introduce you to that early on in the safety of a K through 12 learning environment, because you have the chance to actually learn and see. And with ACE, you know, our mentors are practitioners. They're people who are doing this every day. So the students get a real connection to where they could be in 10 years, where they could be in five years. So because we have some university students who join us as well. It's just the opportunity is endless. Now, I will say, is opportunity equal for everyone? No, we have work to do. We have a lot of work to do when it comes to, to reaching our communities equitably. And when it comes to, you know, some models actually go to the schools themselves and run it from there, which is just outstanding, right? Like you have the chance to actually reach the students where they are, which ultimately is what, in my mind, and I know a lot of others think this way, is I think architects have to be ingrained in the community in every way. Mm-hmm. And the ideal lens of what an architect could be or look like is homegrown. You have someone who is designing in the communities they raised, they were raised in, they lived in and understand holistically and have the trust from that community. How more incredible would we have of a profession if everyone had that mindset of, I have a personal vested responsibility to this community, not only because I live here, not only because I give here, but because I feel called to make this a better place, to give it my all. I think community engagement is one very strong way that we can do that. Community advocacy is one way we can strongly do that. And in turn, plugging in K through 12 so that those students who you're talking with architecture, talking about architecture too, can then be the architects in 10 years time and 15 years time who are giving back with that same fervor and that same passion, same care. No, I love it. I love that you're planting the seeds early on and it allows them and you also, you know, you bring up a lot of point, good points, but <laughs> you mentioned that it's in the safe space of learning K through 12. That's one thing is when you decide halfway through architecture school, which architecture school is not cheap, as we know, universities aren't cheap. It makes the decision of whether you're going to pivot to another degree that much more intense because there's also the financial burden and the it's a lot more of a, I would say, high stress decision than if you are just exploring it at a younger age. Absolutely. And I think licensure is also a commitment that is not only a financial one, but a a stress one. I mean, you're putting stress on families, you're putting pauses on life to make those things happen. And I think as a profession and really with NCARB, I have to applaud what they're doing right now and talking the many ways in, many ways out on what does licensure look like if you are entering the profession at different times and different scales. So I'm really excited to see where the conversation goes from there. Our current NCARB president, John Baker, actually does did not study architecture and became licensed through California, which is one of the states that allows you to have the 10 years of experience and then mm-hmm. sit for your exams. So to have that perspective is going to be so rich. And I am really, really looking forward. And I'd encourage listeners who are in architecture to keep an eye on it because NCARB is essentially the regulatory body over licensure. And then the states provide the actual stamp, right? So you get your stamp from from your state. But I think exciting things are happening. Now, granted, it is a large organization. Things may not move tomorrow, but these seeds are planted. And I can't wait to see where the profession goes. We're really attacking it on all angles to make it more equitable, more accessible, and something that 
it represents the communities that we serve. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And you know, knowing now, having gone through architecture school, licensure, everything, you know it's a daunting process when you're looking at it as an 18-year-old, as a 16, 13-year-old. When you're presenting it to students, how are you making it not sound scary? Yeah. In a way. <laughs> <laughs> I think the biggest thing I've described to them is saying, meet an architect. If it's not me, if it's another professional, be exposed to it. And we're going to find how to make the plug, right? Whether it's a phone call, whether it is an actual office visit, meet the people who are where you want to be in the future, or at least in the in the direction you want to go. And the reason why I say that is because it's a lot easier to take on a daunting goal when you can get an, a vision of the finish line. You have a vision of where you're going. Having that direction can change a person's entire life. And I think I'm a testament to that. Had no idea really where it was going to land until I found my internship, until I found someone who really said, come licensed, get after it. It's important. Until I witnessed someone have that same, that success, the running around the office with the scale. Those pieces, envisioning a finish line can make the entire process that much easier. I also talk with them through very much, hey, this is anywhere from a six-year to a 15 to a 20-year process. Do not feel like your timeline has to look exactly like someone else's. This is your path. This is your story. And you bring your own strengths to it. But I tell them, you have to love what you do because this profession is going to try you. You know, like with anything, it's the professional environment. And you're going to have times of stress. There's going to be times of hardship. But there's also going to be times of victory and excellent things and and the winds of saying, This is a project that's reflective of the community and what they asked for, but you're able to create something they didn't even have the words for, but when they see it, they're like, this is what I was asking for in the, in the architectural environment. So I think you have to love what you're doing, learn about it. I always push them to join ACE. I'm like, come with us to this. Or if you're not an ACE, we've started a job shadowing program here at VLK. Our Houston office does it a lot. We had our first one in Austin. Or we open it up to students and say, come visit our office for four hours. We're going to take you through our community design process. This is how we actually approach it. This is why it's so important to us. And honestly, I feel like that's why we've been able to resonate so well with a number of our communities is just genuinely and humbly understanding we're here to listen to you. We are your facilitators of design. We're going to bring our expertise and we're going to talk about the built environment responsibly and justly. But this is your building. It shouldn't look like something that we did or forced upon you. Ultimately, you are living with this. High schools are 75 to 100 year facilities. I've been very, very fortunate to say I've been working on, I'm in my fourth one in three years with BLK. And it has just been incredible because there's so much ownership and so much care that comes in the community because it is a big deal to add not only the cost of this facility, but you're going to impact thousands of students a year in a hundred year facility, in a facility that's going to long outlive me. We got to get it right. We'll have to listen to our administrators. We have to listen to our users. And it's been a humbling process for me to see. And I love bringing students along when I can to be able to see that process. Well, that's great. And I think even getting input from students who are the users, of course. especially, I mean, I've just was thinking about, you know, my high school. And now I think also with the technology changing, the classroom environment is changing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know what kids are bringing. I remember we did have laptops in some classes, but, you know, yeah, I mean, the technology is changing and, and the way teachers teach, I'm sure, is is evolving. 
Yeah, and every community process that we have, we call it our VLK launch. Actually had one a couple weeks ago with a really, really fantastic school district. They're all fantastic school districts. But this one I had a personal tie to given my high school principal as a superintendent now. Oh, so nice. this was 10 years ago and now he's here. It's just incredible. The student voice and the student agency, we have students involved at every launch. They were the ones who actually decided, they asked me, they're like, Gabby, can we share, you know, our findings on this? And I said, of course. Three students presented it in front of a team of 75 adults behind them and said why they did or did not resonate to certain to certain boards because we're presenting them design concepts. And I was so impressed. I was so impressed. And then, you know, we did a high school about a year ago where we were going through the same design process. Again, a number of students representing we had an athlete, we had an athlete and a fine arts invested student, like someone who plays in the band, someone who is really plugged into CTE, really plugged into the ag program, came and gave the actual presentation on the design concept that they were proposing. That's part of our of our launch process. And I'm just, I'm constantly impressed by the student voice, but even more so the fact that there is a system to be able to have that space, to make the space for the students is just I love it. It's why I'm so passionate about educational learning environments. I think I'm learning more and more as I go on or, or just maybe reaffirming why it is I do what I do, being able to see those spaces. Oh, absolutely. And I think it feels like it would give power to the students who are the end users. And when they hear that their voice is being heard and those decisions are being implemented into the new design, I think that is so much encouraging for them to see and then even continue to inspire them to join like a design profession as well. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I, I say it jokingly, but not really. I'm like, I've got some future architects in the room. We're hiring. <laughs> Y'all are ready. Come on over. I love it. And I want to touch base on something you mentioned earlier in the episode on when you mentioned that you're, you have a, someone interning and yeah. that it's a paid internship. Yeah. And that's something I wish was heavily more discussed as well on letting students know and advocate for themselves because I did an unpaid internship and I have yet to reach back out to that firm because in the moment I was a student, I'm like, this is a great opportunity. But when I started studying for the NCARB exams and then they're teaching you, NCARB is teaching you, don't do unpaid internships. If you work at a firm, don't provide unpaid internships. I mean, at the end of the summer, he gave me like a little check, but like it would have barely covered a week's worth of work, right? So as like a thank you, how are you letting students know about the importance of making sure that they get paid for an internship? Yeah, that has a lot to do. So I double dip. I'm also an NCARB licensing advisor for the firm. So I give NCARB's Destination Architect presentation to not only our, our new hires, but those who have not maybe not started the licensure process yet. They have questions on how to calculate experience. And I bring in the students with it to sit and listen, whether it's our college interns or our high school interns, and say, look, this is the process. This is the path. And we have a specific piece where we talk about internships. We talk about the unethicalness of unpaid internships. And the reason why I specifically called it out is there are a number of you know, university professional development programs, PDPs, or high school curriculum, high school is the word I'm looking for, practicum courses that say you don't have to pay your students, but it needs to be on the firm to pay because it is unethical to not. It is in our AIA you know, code of ethics. So I think it's on the students, but the students don't know what they don't know. It falls a lot to the professionals to say, no, we can't offer that. Why? Because it's not going to make a more equitable profession. We're going to continue the same system of only allowing people who have the resources to be unpaid 
to be able to do this. And I just don't think that's enough. I think we have to do more. We have to meet people where they are. And as a, if we work together, if we work collectively to make this happen, it's happening. It's going to happen. No, absolutely. And I think too, it also brings like that idea of you're very valued as an architect. I know a lot of people don't realize architects aren't, we don't make a ton of money. Like, I mean, we, we love what we do, which of course that's very rewarding, but you know, in a monetary sense, you know, we also want to pay for housing and food and, you know, life that also requires, you know, money, but we don't make as much. And I think starting the idea of already at a lower level, you are valued your time is valued, your production, your ideas do have, I mean, we live in a monetary world. We can't deny that. We need money to be able to live. But knowing that at an early stage, you need to know your worth as well. I think that's very important. Exactly. You're just empowering that agency all the way throughout for people to be able to make those decisions and advocate for themselves. Absolutely. I'm trying to think on how to conclude this episode because you've pointed on so many amazing points and so many inspiration points. But if you had one final message, we had to seal it together for anyone out there listening who's maybe thinking about architecture or, you know, is thinking maybe they're in their middle of, you know, architecture school and are like, I don't know if this is for me. You know, what are kind of, what would be your words of wisdom? Yeah, it would be first off, find a mentor or more importantly, find a sponsor. Hmm. Someone who you resonate with, not only resonate with, but has the time, the effort, and the energy to stand up for you when it matters. And then to the people who are in the mentor and sponsorship role, make it count. Don't halfway do it with people. You have to be caring because what you give to others is going to be what they give to the next generation. And if it is good, it's going to be better. And if it is halfway done, It's just going to continue to be halfway done until we're at a profession that people don't want to be a part of. So we have to be engaged, not only in the conversations of how people are being valued, how they're being treated, how our firm is approaching work, but we have to talk about how are we being plugged into the community, whether it is through philanthropy. How are you talking about more than just providing a service of architecture? Does the community know you beforehand or were you just there to go after work? You want to become community advocates, community leaders, and think about those who are underserved, those who are not a part of the table, who aren't at the table. If you do not include them, we're going to make our own table. (laughs) That's just how it is. (laughs) And how much richer of a profession can it be when we all collectively work together to better the built environment, to move as a whole body, as opposed to just limbs and pieces? Like, how are we being as productive and as inspiring and encouraging of a profession as we can be. And the more we do that, the better off we'll be in the future. A little clap. That was amazing. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And so thank you so much for coming on from the Honeycomb podcast and sharing your your wisdom, first off, your advocacy, your philanthropy. I mean, you, I know you're on so many boards, so many communities, but you really, you have a voice and you're really sharing it. And I really appreciate you reaching out to so much of the community. Thank you especially about this profession, which is an awesome profession to be a part of. Um, Thank you for creating this platform, creating from the Honeycomb podcast. It is, 
it's creating an outreach that shows we're not just architects. We are creating an entire generation of just of thought leaders and empowering people to do the things that they're good at and they naturally have skills and talents for. So thank you for creating this platform and for reaching out to communities in the way that you are. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And where can listeners find you? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. I post most of my content either through Instagram or through LinkedIn, most of the professional development. And then LinkedIn is Gabriella. Uh, in parentheses, Gabby with two B's and a Y, Bermea. And then in the Instagram, and it's at Gabby Bermea. Perfect. I'll provide links in the show notes. And also for the event in December, is that a yes. public event? Can I post that in the show notes? So yeah, you can post that in the show notes. That'll be tagged on to the committee summit. So we okay. have a hundred person seat list. I don't know how invitations are going to be spread out. I'll know more after Friday. Friday okay. will be our next committee meeting. Okay. And then we'll have one more and then we'll meet in December. Okay, well, if it's in the show notes, you can follow it in the show notes and and join. And yeah, Gabriella, thank you so much for coming on from the Honeycomb. Thank you, Katerina. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of From the Honeycomb Podcast. As we conclude, I want to express my gratitude for joining me in today's episode. I hope you have found it insightful and inspiring. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to rate, review, and click that like button so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to share this with your friends. You can follow me on Instagram at From the Honeycomb Podcast, and you can also further your support of From the Honeycomb by visiting the patron link provided in the show notes. Your contribution helps make more episodes possible. And lastly, don't forget to subscribe to my monthly newsletter, A Spark of Positive Energy, that comes out on the 7th of each month. Thank you so much, and see you next Friday.